0: Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. The time is 4 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture for Tuesday, September 12, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. First up today, we take you behind the scenes at the Home Co-op in Orland with Executive Director Tracy Hare. Maybe you've been to their auction or have heard that they help house people when they're homeless, but you may be surprised at all the other things they actually do there. Tracy Hare took time out of her very busy schedule yesterday to speak with me and show me around. I'm Tracy Hare, and I'm the executive director here since last October. You had worked here for a long time before you became the executive director, though, right? What's yes. your history here?
1: I had been here 12 years. I came here first. I stayed at the hospitality house and shelter, oh. and then I and I worked in day for two days. Two days for two days. And, two days. <laughs> <for> two days. <laughs> and then I uh, the sisters gave me a chance to work upstairs as a grant writer, and I I uh, so I worked. Up here, up on this floor in the learning center, as a grant writer for eleven years, and then I moved away for a couple of years. I got married, and my partner and I returned to take over the ministry.
0: Oh, yeah. so so Julia isn't uh, you didn't meet here; you met somewhere else and ended right, up. Right, she
1: here. was running. I don't know if you've heard of Emmaus House of Harlem. Um, so it's a similar model uh, located in Harlem, New York, and she was overseeing that work there. And I met her, I was volunteering for home in Harlem. And so uh, we move, I moved there to be with her in the ministry. And then uh, uh, once they, were, uh, they discovered our relationship, we were kicked out. Um, so the sisters, fortunately, they were, uh, Lucy is, uh, is, was uh, needing someone to help. And we had a management team at the time. Uh, when i came back of myself
0: lawrence rosa and mary there's a relationship between home and emmaus and it was an emmaus shelter or a home shelter that you were
1: no the shelter in uh the work in harlem was started by a priest a malachi priest father david kirk and he uh the emmaus house was a member of emmaus international Mm -hmm. Uh, they're no longer a member and home and St. Francis community here in Orland were both members of Emmaus International. And so that was the connection with Harlem. There were three communities in the United States at the time. And I think during the 80s, uh, staff members from home would go to Harlem and give out street uh, sandwiches on the street corner. And so the relationship began. We used to take some of the residents from Harlem um, that needed to get out of the city and away from drugs. Um, some of their residents would come here temporarily. Of course, now drugs are everywhere and <laughs> that that solution doesn't exist. Um, uh, so that's how the relationship began
0: uh, with May's house in Harlem anyway. But it was more, is that- some of the more conservative religious members that had
1: difficulty the, the board um was made up of members of the orthodox church greek orthodox church uh, and the orthodox church of america and um at at the time uh, they they had an issue with with my relation at mine and julia's relationship and so as a result of that um, we were we were asked to leave and uh, uh yeah and we were one of you know two of six people that were asked to leave a, a, a monk or a former monk monk who uh, is gay was asked to leave um so we all spread out and i i went to work for a volunteer actually with a mercy center in the bronx for a little while and then uh, julia and i came back to maine and
0: here we are and with Sister Lucille, who was the former executive director here, your story must have really... Sister Lucy. Lucy, I mean. Yeah, yeah Sister yeah. Lucy. Uh, your story must have really resonated with her because she, back when she started this place back in the, the late 60s, early 70s, had also had some problems with some of the more conservative members of her church.
1: Right. Hers was for different reasons. Uh, right. But uh, basically similar, you know, different... different um, Approaches to serving the poor, I guess Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Yeah, So she understood But I don't think It's never been a part of um, Lucy's conversation with me And I think that's one of the most amazing things About home Uh, Those labels and things are insignificant And and home is really special in that way Because this is really A melting pot of of all of the different um, uh, Ways of being We have We have and I don't know if I dare say, but we have Trump supporters here. We have Bernie supporters here. We have, we're right at the intersection of values. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, right now that makes the work really, really well, challenging. Well, yeah. but right. At the same time, there's a lot of beauty in that.
0: Um, what you do hear reminds me a lot of, uh, in Central America, you hear a lot about the liberation theology. Right. And like the Catholic worker movement kinds of things. There seems to be some elements of that. But you're saying that that's not the only thing that's right. going
1: on here. You know, there's a lot, you know, the Catholic Worker Movement, we're a lot like the Catholic Worker Movement, only um, we're a non-profit now, always have been uh, since since 1970, and so uh, being a, non, a non-profit, you have a lot more uh, restrictions, and um, you're, you're functioning, you're doing right. the work in a box, and the Catholic Worker because they're not registered as a nonprofit, they have a lot more freedom to, to uh,
0: be political
1: protest in the streets right. and those types of things
0: right, so. but in terms of having a mission to, to serve the poor and to not turn anybody away, same it's the same, everybody has a seat at the table, uh, we, we try
1: not to have a hierarchical structure and, and that's similar to the Catholic worker and so far it, it works uh, you, some of our decision making has to be made by a few people how it just makes sense for such a huge operation. But for the most part, uh, we, we try. A lot of the, I think probably 10 of our staff came here homeless first. And they're in key roles within the organization, Uh, and so that's that's really important to us, and it's important to us from our past, but it's also important going forward Mm -hmm. that we don't outsource our, you know, our people. That they, you know, they come from, they, they have some experience with suffering of some sort right i mean Um, who would know better right yeah it's not a prerequisite but it's also not a reason to shut somebody out
0: right yeah this is a busy place people may hear some of the background of the hustle and bustle how many people are here on any given day and what's going on in this office building
1: uh well generally we have 40 41 staff We're, we're we're experiencing financial difficulty right now so we've got some people laid off um but uh generally about 41 people we have five different shelters so on campus um and by campus i mean we have the learning center so that's the main office building we have three three full-time workers in our shelter department we could use another three (laughs) and we have uh, a person in our learning center and we have two people in our finance department and then there are the thrift workers there are two paid employees there and then lots of volunteers myself and rosa uh, uh, we're ad- administration and Ralph, who who we you folks know as Freddie. As Freddie, he's down the hallway, uh, and uh, his wife Millie is tending the garden. And Karen, so we have two people in the garden, and then we have the sawmill crew. Um, so we have we have a lot of staff. We don't have as many staff as we need to do the work, um, and so mm-hmm. you know we're writing in our fall appeal. Um, what we're facing now staff-wise is uh, there's been an increasing need for our services and we're we're doing the work and we're doing it better I feel our staff are doing really, really well given the resources that they have to do the work Um, but we also recognize we could use more more people we just don't have a budget to pay them we could use a maintenance person uh, a budget for a maintenance person for all of those physical structures and uh, Mm -hmm. so 41 people right now huh.
0: yeah. and how many how many people before the layoffs how many people does it take to be fully staffed
1: uh, right now well we I don't the two different answers so before that we've we've got um, every staff member has taken a two-hour cut uh, some of us are not able to do that every week but but we're, we're we've what we try and do when we run into financial trouble is see if everybody can take an equal hit so we all agreed a to two-hour to cut, and we've gone through most of the summer that way. Um, but that wasn't, that's not working, so we needed to do some more um, cuts. We've, ha- we've had to lay off um, one full-time maintenance person. We hope to bring him back soon. Uh, uh, we, so we've got three full-timers laid off right now. We've um, cut our craft store hours down to three days a week, uh, and our bargain barn will be at four days. Actually, our craft store will be four days a week. So that's where we've cut. Uh, ideally, if we had a budget to, you know, to meet the increased need, we we would like uh, another person, full-time person, in our learning center. We'd like. One, maybe two more, three more people in the shelter department. We would like to have a budget for an overnight person in the Doorhouse Men's Shelter and an overnight person in the Women's Shelter, and another navigator in the shelter department. It's our shelter department that's really understaffed. Um, we've we we could use a, a sawyer. We uh, people to cut wood. People to work in the shingle mill. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I imagine some of these things are things that if you could find somebody to volunteer would be great, but there's probably a reason why it's important to keep them as paid employment, too.
1: Right. So the maintenance areas, paid employment helps because there's that pipe freeze in the middle of the night or, or something that you really need to be able to depend on a paid person and then you know you're that paid person needs to be able to depend on a wage right
0: people need to have jobs and,
1: right and we found you know we have a lot of volunteer a, a large volunteer effort and a lot of volunteers
0: mm-hmm. uh but now we're getting
1: into the kind of yucky jobs that that not everybody's available we don't have uh, volunteers right now that have unlimited time to be on call for some of these things and the shelter work you can't really volunteer uh, there's a confidentiality piece of the mm-hmm. folks that are in the shelters so you would have to go through main ha- training um, right. to learn some of that aspect of the work so we can't just put a volunteer into the shelter department but we we can put volunteers to work in other areas yeah.
0: so home stands for home workers organized for more employment right can yeah. you tell me about the history of that name yeah, and how so, much of that's still at play now yeah it's a good question
1: so originally it was uh, the craft store was the main hub of home and the idea behind that was for people in the area who who didn't make much money could make a craft uh, and sell it in the craft store and basically they were home workers trying to augment their a- income for the winter and, and, and make Christmas wreaths or potholders and different things and so they would bring them and sell them in our craft store and uh, the, consignment 70-30 I believe it was back then it still is now so that was the beginning of home and As time went by, the sisters noticed... uh, First of all, they were taking people home with them, so that identified a need for shelter. Uh, They were feeding them, and identified a need for food. And um, some people couldn't read or write that identified a need for the learning center. Um, So the the programs developed organically, somewhat messily, really. Is that a word? (laughs) Um, Out of of, uh, demonstrated need. Uh, And so... How it applies today, um, it's, we're not as much uh, focused on the crafting part um, because the world has changed since 1970, and folks that are coming to us now have so much more going on than, than just economic oppression. Um, there's been an increase in people presenting to our shelters with drug problems, uh, drug use issues of about, I think, statewide. I think there's been a 36% increase in people self-identifying with um, drug use problems Um, within the last... I've been here 12 years. Uh, Within the last two years one person has died and one person has been hospitalized twice. Um, And I was at a meeting the other day with all the shelter directors in the state and the director from uh, the Portland shelter said, you know years ago it used to be a a once a year occurrence now they have a code blue in their shelter every day that's in portland No, code blue is a medical emergency uh an overdose (laughs) a drug related emergency yeah yeah yeah. um so we're we're we've we're regrouping organically really
0: just to deal with what people are presenting with um is there anything locally i mean even like a narcotics anonymous meeting like if i'm thinking if somebody ends up here and they're homeless they're probably not going to have a car so they can drive to bangor or sure. Ellsworth to get treatment
1: right we have an AA meeting on campus here three days a week and if folks uh, are interested in attending that they can call the office or stop in and get a schedule okay. um and uh the N- N.A. folks can attend that meeting, but we also have resources, um, the typical N.A. resources, uh, the list of meetings in our area. I believe the closest
0: meeting to Orland would be in Ellsworth. Uh, Those things are more, at least with N.A., more helpful with somebody who's already had some kind of treatment right. is maintaining their sobriety versus somebody who's like actually trying to go through a detox. Right. What so a
1: detox... Uh, it's a little more tricky because there are safety issues involved right. in a detox, and a yeah. shelter provider can't provide that safety. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, local hospitals would be charged with that, or places like Wellspring. Um, I believe the Hos- Hope House in Bangor mm-hmm. has um, more uh, resources to address people who are actively uh, in in use. Uh, we can't, and, and you know, we've we've talked about among staff. Having a shelter, they call it a low barrier or a wet shelter um, here, and if we had more people and more staff on board, we could, but we don't have a budget for that, and we're mindful of setting up a situation that we can't properly... Um, follow
0: through with is um, that the kind of shelter where somebody can come and have a bed, even if they have been using, right? If, you know, even they if they're, using, they're
1: drunk, yeah. or um, we can't do that right now. You know, if you arrive to one of home, sh- uh, come to one of home shelters and you're impaired in any way, uh, we can't um, we can't let you stay. There have been occasions, and, and I'm you know I'm not encouraging folks to roll in here under the influence, but um, if somebody is sort of not completely fall down drunk and they need a place to stay we might put them in the classroom Mm -hmm. until the morning Uh, mostly like in winter because we're on route one and we can't put somebody
0: on the highway they'll surely be hurt so but that's the case with a lot of shelters across the state that you can't go to them if you're if you're impaired for the safety of the other people in the shelter yeah so with the the opioid epidemic increasing and other things what you said it, uh, the possibility of a wet shelter or a low barrier shelter. Barring that, what else could be done here?
1: Uh, well, I guess part of it is we have to recognize and accept, I suppose, reluctantly, that shelters are the front lines to, uh, what, on the front lines of the, the uh, crisis. And mm-hmm. so our staff are, um, we've been invited to do Narcan training. Uh, So some staff, those who are willing, will be learning how to administer that. Um, You know, in our area, we're not doing... It wouldn't be something we would use every day, but once a year is is more than we've ever had. Um, So we're doing... uh, We have a training coming up for shelter staff and probably food bank staff on on, on not just emergency response to somebody who's in the middle of an overdose, but also... um, how to, how to now work with folks who are coming uh, mm-hmm. with with uh, substance use issues. Um, the emotional aspect of it, the spiritual aspect of it. Um, I think that's the movement with the shelters, at least in the state. Uh, I go to this meeting, uh, I go to a meeting once a month with all of the other shelter directors in the state, or at least most of them, and, and we're talking about this now. Uh, it was actually the topic of our last meeting was to talk about... You know, what do we do now? Um, what's interesting is uh, the state has put in an amazing effort to, uh, to to make finding housing for folks an incentive for shelters. But a part, part of the piece that we're patching together as shelter providers is um, we still have to keep the lights on and we still have to, you know, we're still receiving people in really, really, really rough shape. And so, about ba- we have to find a balance. I think in the state, while it's great to follow the housing first model, and I support that, and we all support that, but let's not forget shelters have to provide a safe shelter. We can't ignore the fact that people are in homeless shelters. Um, and that's the reality. So, for us as shelter providers, we're we're desperate, uh, and I'm not speaking just for home. All of the shelter providers in the state um, are feeling this change in in the in the um, the picture of who people who are coming to us uh, mental illness on top of that
0: you're listening to main currents and weru i'm amy brown i spoke with executive director tracy Hare at the home co-op in orland yesterday the numbers of people that you have coming and needing to stay at the shelter are they on the rise with the yeah so uh we've housed more people than
1: we've ever housed before so from since 2016 january we we've housed 125 people which is great for a rural area um and for home uh but on the flip side of that and i've written it in my appeal is uh, we in that during that same time period we've seen an increase of 25 individuals coming for shelter um we in January of 2016, we gave out 38, I believe, food boxes. Then in January of 2017, we gave out 73. Um, same time last year, uh, we gave out 45 backpacks to uh, families in the area for school. This year, 81 people signed up. So we're seeing an increase all over the scale of, mm-hmm. of need. Um, but there's no increase in, in funding to meet that need, and I can't imagine it will get any better uh, right, right away. Anyway, um, as more, you know, if one program is cut at the state level, it, it doesn't go away. Those people just flock to the nonprofits or the churches. Right. So, the problem isn't gone. It's just shifted to another
0: a pool of money, and you know everyone's not got much of that. So, what are some of those things that are being cut? I mean, in this area. I imagine the mill closure has had some economic impact. You must be seeing some of that, or, or some of that,
1: not as much as we anticipated. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, you know, part of that may be people not identifying their reason for coming to us. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I think, a, a, a job in our area isn't enough to pay for rent. So, you know, that's why they're coming to our door. Um, And we can't even begin to talk about if LIHEAP was cut. You know, we dodged one on that, but um, that would be devastating. Most, I I think, most of the intakes, if I were just to throw it out there, would be uh, not able to pay utilities or way behind in rent. Um, Those would be most of the reasons people are presenting as homeless. And also most of the barriers to rehousing people. Oh, right. There's also this part of a credit check for people and for anybody renting an apartment, you have to have a credit check. And I don't know, Amy, if you know anyone in shelter who has good credit. I mean, so that's a challenge. And yet, you're you know you're assessed as a shelter provider on how well you're housing folks. Uh, so there's no real black and white system that fits all of all of the shelters in the state. Um, there may be more housing in Portland, although I doubt it. available for folks but one of the barriers here is we can have people in shelter and they might have a voucher in their hand uh, but they fail the credit check we had a uh, couple here with a voucher a uh, a voucher for veterans I'm not sure the specific name of the program they're on and they were denied because of their credit check Wow. Uh, so what do you do with that (laughs) Um, it you know it takes months and maybe it's even not Possible for someone in a homeless shelter to repair their credit. Um, so that that's that's been a barrier for us. Wow, housing. that seems like
0: a big catch twenty-two for people.
1: It is, yeah, yeah, and you know, it's a hard one. Um, you know, you also understand the landlord's perspective as well. Uh, but you know, where our role here is to help people move from shelter into more permanent housing. But don't the
0: vouchers mean that the state is going it's to their check, <laughs> pay for it? <laughs> it, so. it does. It does. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, in terms of food insecurity, you said you—that mm-hmm. sounds like that's doubled in terms of the need with the food baskets. Almost. Uh, at least in our food
1: bank, it has. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had uh, it like almost mm-hmm. double, or well, actually double the amount of people coming in January of this year compared to last year, so it's definitely gone up. It's exciting for home that we've been able to meet the need. It's not ha- exciting that there's an increased need, uh, but so far we, we're doing okay meeting the need for uh, the food at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And there's a soup kitchen across the way too? Yeah, we have a soup kitchen open Monday through Friday, and there's a meal, a hot meal or, uh, available to anybody who wants to come for it at noon time every day and then we have a food bank as well
0: how does the community support these programs do you have people donating food or so uh we well home buys food
1: from the good shepherd food bank at a reduced price so that's one way uh we also um received we were beneficiaries of the u.s postal service food drive from a few different post offices which was really great uh we have volunteers that come here every year from out of state and they do food drives in their areas so they bring truckloads of food occasionally during the summer and we have uh uh trade winds in blue hill brings us produce on monday mornings and then hannaford supermarket in bucksport brings us uh, we pick up uh and it's it's day old produce produce, uh, um, we pick that up and so that's here every day for people after nine o'clock
0: and yeah. so we have a steady
1: stream of folks that come in for that.
0: Any other needs in that regard that just since there are people listening in the community a lot of whom may be farmers or the, you know the end of the year, is if people have leftover except zucchini. <laughs> Darn! <laughs> right, you can't upload zucchini But okay, other than zucchini, no chocolates yeah. <laughs> at least.
1: Zucchini, uh, you know, fresh produce is good because you're stuck. You know, when you're eating out of a food bank, mm-hmm. the food isn't the great. You know, it, a lot it's, of it's processed. Yeah, and, and you know, so fresh produce is wonderful. Always, always take
0: see. that. What else? What other needs? I mean, we're going to talk about your appeal and the financial needs mm-hmm. later. But in terms of things that, if other people are listening and they're thinking, well, I'm happy. I'm very fortunate that I'm just above mm-hmm. being able, being needing the services, and I want to give back, but I don't have a ton of money. Sure. What other kinds of things might so, I be able to? So, you know, do? if you're
1: in your grocery store or you collect coupons, toothpaste, toothbrushes, razors for men and women, deodorant. Uh, we have a resource room, which is new this year, and it's an entire room uh, dedicated to uh, hygiene products for men and women. So, um, uh, feminine hygiene products—those mm-hmm. things are, you know, they're expensive, mm-hmm. and a lot of people come here and don't have an income at all. Socks, uh, winter hats. Uh, we'll have a coat drive coming up in uh, probably in December. Or November, actually, um, mostly for adults or kids or both. Both, you know, we have a. Uh, we had twenty-one kids signed up for our lunch program this year, so um, that's also an increase uh, from from prior years. Uh, but we collect coats for kids and adults. Um, uh, yeah, you know, the most basic items, uh, over-the-counter things. If, if you know, a, a container of Tums, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, just things that we take for granted that we can probably right.
0: just go to the store and get. Um, and then can people just drop them off downstairs? At this? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. just drop them off. Actually, in the main office of the Learning Center, those items are distributed in the Learning Center, mostly to shelter residents, and um, the food bank would
0: send people over here for those types of items. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of weekdays, office hour times? or Right,
1: where the office is open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., um, of course, if you're in need for shelter, we have a you know 24-hour phone service, so you can call after those hours if you're in need for shelter. Hey, what's that phone number, just in case? It's 469-7961. Uh, okay, yeah. financially, we we've been really blessed to have um, uh, some foundations take on rehabilitation work on our shelters. Our shelters are old. Most of the shelters, a lot of the shelters in the state aren't in great shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are two two we. The, the biggest need we have is uh, the administrative piece of, of keeping this work together. Um, it's it's sometimes easier to fund uh, a newer project. Uh, you know, we, for example, we just got a, n- a grant for a computer lab uh, at the same time where we don't have uh, we may not have payroll uh, mm. this Friday. Uh, so what my biggest plea to the community is uh, home is doing more than it 's ever done to respond to people in our communities that are homeless without food or or community and we're doing it really really well we've recently had a, a, a an audit from Maine housing um, take take that as you wish uh, um, and we're we're in good shape as far as what we 're supposed to be doing to help people who are homeless uh, so The biggest plea is um, the stuff that's not so pretty to fund. That's, you know, heating five shelters, keeping the electricity on for five shelters, keeping five buildings up to code and keeping the staff that we need to respond to the mess that this world is in, uh, in good shape, Uh, well-trained. You know, as the world changes, we're having to train our staff more like case managers. Shelter staff are... Basically, working like case managers and that's not to, to take away from the hard work case managers are doing because they're working really hard too um, we're working really really hard and, um, and we, we're happy to do that work uh, and we hope to continue to do that work but we need financial support for the not so pretty part of running a shelter which is mm-hmm. basically the money to, to keep the, the internet on for the shelter stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, For the shelter residents, I'm sorry, to use those computers that we just got and and to heat the shelters through the winter. Um,
0: And to pay the stuff. Right, right. As I'm leaving, we're just going to take a little quick walk around. Tracy's going to tell me a little bit about some of what they do here.
1: This is the Learning Center uh, computer lab, so this is brand new actually. The new, new place. Actually. Yeah, nice. we, we just got a grant
0: from Bank or Savings for this. So, describe it to people who are listening on the radio. So,
1: it, basically we have four computers in a very sunny yellow room and um, the idea behind it, um, basically um, there aren't, there's really not a safety net program you can apply for now without being online or connected somehow. I- So, uh, for shelter residents to fill out housing applications, job applications, uh, IDs, uh, you know, anything that one needs to do can be done on this. But as well as that, we have a basic computer tutoring
0: lots of books here
1: yes our dinosaur uh, library bookshelves Uh, so uh, this is basically just a an honor system just come in and take a book and replace it with one of yours or return it when you're done Um, so there's some great titles Um, so this is basically the learning center we have a recycling station and the graffiti on the walls is intentional Uh, we have uh, volunteer groups that come every year and help us with construction and some and other jobs and they stay in the learning center uh, this is, the, annabelle oh, is our mascot
0: dog I'm trying to um, be like very quiet and then i yes, just ran yes. into like the cutest dog in the world oh my gosh <laughs> bulldog oh yes annabelle annabelle's annabelle. the mascot she's the mascot everybody uh, loves her can i say hi she loves every we we'll say hi yeah. <laughs> it, she doesn't make much noise, it's only when she hears a sound she doesn't recognize and she thinks she needs to protect us all. she'll bark and. So
1: um, this is the classroom. Uh, I was just talking about the volunteers. so this, basically uh, the volunteers, some volunteers sleep in here in the summer. Uh, but as well as that we have fall cl- spring and fall classes and a variety of classes. Uh, our class schedule has just come out. so you can see that on Home's Facebook page as well stop into the office but we have oil painting, body speak which is uh, an introduction into Chinese medicine taught by uh, Julia we have soap making Uh, we have some talks on Emmaus which will connect local folks with uh, more of a global uh, experience of poverty Um, so there will be occasional talks on uh, the Emmaus work, there's uh, pottery resume writing, some academic classes by request so we have um, uh, Josh, who's on staff, he has a computer science degrees, degree, and he's really great at math. So, if anybody needs tutoring in math, um, simple things. If if you're trying, if you're want to, uh, you're trying to get your driver's license, we can go through the driver's license test with you. GED preparation. Um, it's a mixed bag. We also uh, in the learning center we try and uh, cr- uh, provide education uh, at, at meet the person where they're at so uh, traditional models of higher education don't always meet the folks that we're working with here um a lot of them do but some don't and so uh we cater the class experience to meet the people where they're at so math might become a tool to learn how to build your stairs or writing uh just used as a tool to write to the school board or to Mm -hmm. letter to the editor more practical
0: kind of yeah more practical not
1: everybody wants to you know
0: to go... Uh, uh, <laughs> Take algebra or exactly. write an novel. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. 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 Change a tire, um, how, to, how to work in a sawmill. Um, we also try and work on... Um, we've got big dreams for the Learning Center, but we're, we're hoping for the Learning Center also to become... Get back into its job training roots so we, can, mm-hmm. we, we can't hire people in the shelters to work here, but we can teach them a skill. If somebody comes here and they have would like to learn how to run a shingle mill, then that's a skill
0: they could use in Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. And so you were talking about the murals, a lot of, there's a lot of... Uh, yeah, the volunteers like
1: to leave their stamp, uh, so they paint painted the walls. Um, a lot of groups from Connecticut, we have groups from BU, university groups, church oh, yeah. groups. Uh, I think this year we had about 8,000 or so volunteer uh, volunteer hours, um, wow. working on building houses, uh course there's groups that uh, stack firewood in the room around the corner the desert as it's called that's uh julia's space where bodies talk happens there's also um a couple people on staff who are trained to do reiki um, acupressure for addiction Um, we have a connection with well we're hoping to build a connection with some folks who are doing the um the ear acupuncture or acupressure we're looking into that hopefully we can bring that to home And underneath us, which we can't enter now because I think it's nap time, but we have a daycare, which is licensed for 12 kids. Um, And we have uh, a summer program. It's not a day camp, but we have a program for shelter kids to um, basically we do field trips uh, for them, uh, with them in the summer. It's pretty isolating being stuck in a
0: shelter. Um, So you take the the shelter kids to... um, out to parks or the lake? We've taken
1: them to parks. We've taken them to WERU before. Oh. Cool. Uh, museum in Bangor. Um, lots of and we were granted, we got a van uh, with help from, a, this is another one of an example of a grant that's kind of fun to give, is for this, this black van you see over here. It's a 14-passenger van. And we were awarded a $10,000 grant to purchase that.
0: So that's, that's helpful. So you take, take a group out to do something in the community.
1: Yeah, and also
0: uh, we, we do
1: try and expose shelter residents to um, issues that,
0: in Augusta, that come out of Augusta
1: that might impact their lives um, and, um, in, a, in a neutral way. So we, that's also available to take folks to the statehouse if they want the experience of how government works and how policy is, is done. Uh, this is our craft store. And uh, we talked
0: a little bit earlier about homework is organized for more employment, so this is the house. You still have some things in there that people are making. It's full the
1: yeah, yeah, we we do. We have lots of things in there. Jams and jellies and pot holders. It and looks pottery. like some
0: wood to burn.
1: That we is, do that come from the Yeah, mill? it came from the sawmill. We try and use every part of the tree. And so uh, this is just uh, camp wood basically, or no, this looks like fire starting wood now for wood stoves, but it's, um, we try and use all of the trees, so we bring this over to sell. And then across the street, uh, we have the mills. Uh, we have, we only have two guys working in the mills. We, we ideally need four. Well, we don't have a budget for that right now, but um, we make really good cedar shingles. And down the road, we'd like to uh, market them and sell them. I, I'd love to have a place at the Common Ground Fair to sell our shingles, but right now I don't think we could keep up with demand until we had more staff.
0: That's just part of our tour of the home co op in Orland yesterday, and unfortunately we don't have time for all of it on today's show, but I'll archive the full tour along with today's show at weru.org later in the week. We ended near the chapel where services are still held and AA meetings are hosted. And if anybody's interested in any of these, like going to the AA meeting, going to the service, or, or getting help, or giving, yeah. giving help, what is yeah, the phone it, number again? here to the it, contact? It's 469-7961. Nine, nine, All right. And the Facebook page have, Yes, right? home has a
1: Facebook page. We also have a web page. It's h uh, o m e m m a u s a. .org. I'll put a link for the. It's, yeah, it's it's a mouthful. Okay, um, but yeah, you know, it's. Um the idea here—it's pretty isolating being homeless. So rather than you know three hots in a cot, we'd rather somebody to have a reason to get out of bed as well as a bed. So you know, there's community here, and I think that's what's missing in a lot of our um, responses to poverty—is being a part of something bigger and you know being a part of a community, having somebody to have a meal with if you want to. Of course, you don't have to. Um, so I think that's what home is about. You don't have to leave campus for the day and come back and get your bed. In the morning, you know, at the end of the day, you can be here. And all we ask is that you contribute to the well-being of others. And, and that could mean just saying hi. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if you want to come volunteer or, or uh, if you need something, give us a call. And we'll try and help. Thanks, yeah.
0: Tracy. Great. That was Tracy Hare, Executive Director of Home in Orleans, speaking with us yesterday. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Up next, an interview with activist and author George Lakey. The Sierra Club of Maine's Maine Grassroots Climate Action Conference will be held on Saturday, September 16th at USM in Lewiston. Becky Bartovics from the Sierra Club says the event will highlight local actions that can be accomplished by action teams that will have an impact on climate disruption. George Lakey will give the keynote on Building a Movement, the Big Picture Vision for the Climate. He recently retired from Swarthmore College, where he was the Eugene M. Lang Visiting Professor for Issues in Social Change. And while there, he wrote his ninth book, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too, after interviewing economists and others in the Nordic countries. All of his books have been about change and how to achieve it. As a young adult, Lakey lived in Norway and worked there, as well as in Denmark and Sweden. On returning to the U.S., he alternated academic positions with founding and leading organizations working for justice and peace. Later, he returned to the global stage to found training for change. George Lakey has led over 1,500 social change workshops on five continents. He received the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Award and the National Giraffe Award for sticking his neck out for the common good. He's also the co-founder of Quaker Action Team. You can get more information about that at eqat.org. And we're speaking with him today by phone from his home in Pennsylvania, where he just returned from another trip to Norway. While in Norway, he gave the keynote at a conference of 300 Nordic economists, and before that, he'd been traveling around the U.S. on a book tour, and I'm exhausted just reading this. You are a very busy man, George. Thanks for taking time to talk with us today.
2: People are telling me, you're turning 80, and when are you going to retire?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, you really are and you're about to turn around and come here to Maine. Are you going to spend a few days here, or are you just going to be here for the conference? And
2: hope- Oh, yes, I'll be, uh, I'll be doing a book talk at Longfellow Books in Portland, And also in Norway at a bookstore called Books and Things. That's Norway in Maine. And uh, so I'm really glad that I'll be able to get around uh, some in Maine as well as doing this really, really important uh, grassroots climate action.
0: Is your schedule on – do you have a website that has your schedule of the other places you'll be here as well?
2: I think it's always worth looking at Melville uh, House books. Melville House uh, books is my publisher, and they often put events on their website. And I also do have a Facebook page, an author's Facebook page, where we where we put
0: events. Okay, great. All right, thank you. So. Even though that was a lot, I, and I left a lot out of my introduction just so the introduction itself didn't take the entire show, but I was really tempted to go down through some of the really impressive highlights of your activist and academic career. But what have I left out that you feel is uh, most significant or what are some of the things that you just feel are parts of what made you who you are today?
2: I was very influenced by the nuclear, uh, the anti-nuclear power struggle that went on in the sixties and seventies, uh, both because the sixties and seventies, as a whole, you know, was just an extraordinary and marvelous time for change in the United States, but also because I learned from those campaigns that there's a very strong additive and even sometimes more than additive, even a synergistic effect when you have many campaigns going on within the same decade or two, and you can have some of the campaigns fail to achieve their particular local objective, and you can still have the sum total of the campaigns making a national impact. So, for example, we really stopped nuclear power in the United States. The goal had been to have 1,000 nuclear power plants, in the United States that had been the goal, you know, the economic Uh lead and the Pentagon and so on. And we really, as a grassroots movement, just frustrated them from reaching anything close to that goal through our action. But the interesting thing about our action uh, in terms of influence on me, and I think could be very influential for our country right now, is to notice that those actions weren't just huge gatherings. Specifically, campaigns organized around specific goals distributed around the United States. And I think that's what's going to be smart for us to be doing in the
0: next 10 years. Is kind of building synergistically off each other's exactly. movements?
2: Off local, uh, local campaigns, that's right.
0: Well, and that's a little bit of what we're going to be doing here today to a very uh, minute degree. And instead of talking about what you're talking about at the Sierra Club's Climate Action Conference, where which people can go and hear you talk about that, uh, building a movement, the big picture vision for the climate, focusing on the building a movement piece of it today instead of the climate piece of it, which you'll be talking about at the conference itself. It seems to me that the building a movement piece really has been the thread that has wound through everything that you've done, starting from getting arrested back in 1963 at a civil rights sit-in.
2: It's so true. And part of the building of movement that really seems to pay off in in every movement that I've participated in has been putting energy into training and empowerment of grassroots activists. Uh, Power, I think, isn't something we bring in somehow or order online. (laughs) Power for change really comes from uh, individuals working together, learning how to work co- uh, collectively in a more effective way, and uh, and and building our own strength. So, for example, in the activist group that I'm part of now, we have a kind of organizational culture that says, "Hey, a norm here is." for us all to be operating on our edge as frequently as possible, not inside our comfort zone, like going to one more demonstration of the sort we've always done, that kind of thing. The question for each of us is, how can we really expand ourselves? How can we build our own individual power through going outside our comfort zone and through doing edgy stuff for us? Uh, our, our organization attracts tons of young people, for example, twenty-somethings, you know, millennials. Partly because it's such a growth-oriented um, group, because we do encourage people to be on their edge. And if they've never, for example, related to the police before, when we're doing an action, hey, you be the police liaison officer for for this event, you know. Or if they've never related to the media before, hey. Uh, have you considered being being the media person today? You could do that, and if you feel lack of confidence or skill, you can do it with somebody more experienced and apprentice to them, and then next time you can be the main person. and so on and so on, and the many roles that need to be played in a movement, and that's another important thing about the movement that I've learned, which is that there are many roles to be played. Sometimes people count themselves out and say, "Oh well, I'm not a movement activist because I'm not—you know—I don't look like uh, uh, Dr. King or something. I don't, don't look like I have exactly that kind of street um, action cred or that kind of oratorical skill." But the reality is that every movement, including the civil rights movement, had many, many roles that needed to be played, and and people were willing to play them.
0: When we were arranging this interview, you mentioned that on your most recent trip, you met with the staff of the Norwegian Anti-Racism Center and came away with some lessons that you feel are important for us on this side of the Atlantic that you're putting together in a paper. Can you give us a preview of some of that?
2: Sure, I can. Yeah. Um, one of the things I really emphasized was having a perspective that includes the, the what's been going on on the ground and as well as what's going on in the mass media and the kind of scuttlebutt, you know, the the kind of discussion that people are having. And because sometimes those are pretty much the same, you can notice what the noise is about and you can say, oh, well, that's pretty much what's going on in the grassroots. But sometimes those are very different pictures and it's really important as we work for change to understand that. So in Norway, for example, um, there's a lot of drama and heat now about race, a lot of pushback against immigration because they've been experiencing in Norway a tremendous lot of immigration. In fact, one in five Norwegians is foreign-born right now, which is, I believe, a higher proportion, I haven't double-checked, than is the case in the U.S., and certainly it's higher than the, is the case in the U.K. And and the majority of Norwegians think that's just fine, and there should continue to be immigration, refugee families should you know, in- integrate, the, the grandmom left behind or something should be brought in, and so on and so on. And they understand that even though there will be pushback, that they are in fact integrating the foreign-born people into the general population, and people are bringing their skills and their motivation, their enthusiasm, and Norway gets stronger as a result. However, you just wouldn't even know that if you paid only attention to the noise being made by the racist Norwegians, who are very anti-immigration and and use uh, uh, use fear of Islam as their wedge, uh, you know. And, and so they're constantly saying, "Oh, we've been like a historically Christian country, and now we're being overwhelmed by Islam, and that means there'll be no room for the grand traditional." Uh, the way of life that we've understood, and so on and so on. And th- there's there's even been a recent march of Nazis in one of the larger Norwegian towns, which has not happened since the '30s. And um, and if we just paid attention to the drama, we would miss the real story. Uh, so that's what I'm also urging people to apply to our country that that there is in fact a growing. A concern for climate. There's a larger and larger movement, more and more pipeline fights, for example, more and more fights over, uh, more and more progress on solar, and that's the campaign that I'm personally involved with, the solar campaign, um, and more and more integration of the climate justice movement with the anti-racist and, and uh, the economic justice movements. There's more and more coherence developing on the grassroots, but Again, we wouldn't necessarily notice that if we're just being very reactive to everything that's tweeted by our president or, or, or you know, uh, pay, paying more attention to the the uh, fascists who are marching than we are to the real development that we're
0: engaged in. Well, what was the immediate reaction to Nazis marching in the streets there? How did it compare to uh, the, beyond, you know, we're talking about the long-term, long-range planning, but... In the immediacy of seeing Nazis marching in their streets, what was the reaction of the people and the official reaction like in, like in Norway as compared to here?
2: Well, for older people who can actually remember back to the 30s and 40s, Norway was actually occupied, after all, by German soldiers. So they saw a lot of swastikas around and stuff during the war. And so for people old enough to remember that, uh, it it is extremely scary.
0: Legitimately is, traumatizing.
2: And, uh, and the trauma that some people experience, for example, the Norwegian woman that, who I married. That was a traumatic experience for her, World War II, and it is very it it, uh, it freaks her out a bit. So, uh, so there's an impulse. Let's suppress that. Let's stop the stop them from marching. Let's um, let's let's put it out of sight. You know, sweep it under the rug. The fact that there are Norwegians who still feel that uh, that way, and um, and then, on the other hand, there's the civil libertarians, right, uh, who say, oh, wait a minute, we, we pride ourselves in our freedom, in our democracy, and our opportunity to debate everything that anybody wants to debate. And if that's their position, then let's debate it, and let's defeat it in the fair uh, exchange of ideas, rather than try to suppress the idea and pretend that it isn't there. And the thing is... Uh, the, so, in that back-and-forth thing about how should we respond to the right-wing, uh, right-wing uh, noise and drama that's created, um, people can can get so engrossed in that that they forget, but wait a minute, the majority of Norwegians want immigration, they want people of color in, in the population, they want to accept uh, Norway as changing to become much more a part of the globe and no longer the homogeneous country it was 50 years ago, and that is the progress that we are making. So it's it's a question almost of balance and proportion. And I would say the younger Norwegians are much more uh, able to ride with the you know with fear about the Nazis and much more able to say yeah, but let's keep our you know like two of my best friends are. Are Muslims, and you know, one of them wears a scarf, and one of them doesn't, and yeah, that's the last life diversity. It's okay, whereas it's much more the older people who have scarring memories,
0: right? That do have art, right? Wow. Well, I we. Decided ahead of time that we were not going to get into too much of what you're going to be talking about when you're here in Maine on the 16th. So that you can save that for the folks who want to come and hear you talk about what's happening uh, with climate uh, change, building a movement around that. But do you want to give a little bit of a a sneak preview for people who may be on the fence about whether or not they're going to go to Lewiston for the Sierra Club of Maine's Grassroots Climate Action Conference on the 16th?
2: Oh, I'm happy to, because in bookstore events, uh, I also get to refer to you know, some of the specifics about, the, about having a vision of countries that is given to us by countries who, because they're, in a way, small laboratories, are able to spurt ahead in addressing climate. And we can look at those laboratories and we can say, whoa, it's really working for them. It's really working for their economies. Um, why don't we scale that up? and make it work for us, Uh, because that's very much the spirit in which I wrote the book. I wrote Viking Economics as a book, um, not because I thought they were utopian countries or not utopia. They would be the first to say, oh, we have lots of challenges still, Um, but just because they are laboratories in which people got to apply conditions uh, of economic justice and uh, equality much, much, to a much greater degree than here. And they've shown that it actually works and there's actual economic payoff to their system. So their system brings them to the top of the you know, the various charts indices the seas of, uh, that are put out. For example, there's a corporate source for investors that ranks all the countries in the world in terms of sustainability. Because that's such an important thing for corporate investors. Do we want to put our money into a country that's being run unsustainably? Which, of course, the United States is being run unsustainably now by our economically. So, uh, so investors, uh, so Chinese investors, for example, love to invest in Norway because the country is run much more sustainably than uh, you know, and, and have some real questions. It's much more adventurous for them to. Invest in a country like the U.S. is being run unsustainably. So this corporate source for uh, investors rated the countries well: number one, Norway; number two, Sweden; number three, Finland; number eight, Denmark. You know they're in the top tier, and then along farther down the line comes the comes Britain, and then still farther down the line, number fifteen is the United States. So uh, what what the um, what the good news is that I get to share around the country about the uh, the economic model adopted by the Vikings is that there's this tremendous payoff for the economy by stressing a model that emphasizes also equality and individual freedom. So Swedes, for example, have more individual freedom than Americans do. That's true for Danes. That's true for Icelanders. They have more individual freedom than we do. Um, and also... The remarkable thing in terms of U.S. uh, thinking about these questions is that the the Nordic countries have shown us that 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 exactly the measures that in that bring more equality for a country bring more individual freedom. That's amazing because there are a lot of people here in the U.S. who think, well, equality is a nice thing, but if you have more equality, then you have less freedom, or if you have more freedom, you have less equality. These are trade-offs. That's just not true. Empirically, it's been shown by the Nordic countries that many of the measures, for example, uh, many of the policies like health care, universal health care, available to all, um, with the source of money coming from taxes instead of from marketplace arrangements like insurances and so on. um, They've shown having everybody have access to good health care as a matter of right, but you also increase the amount of individual freedom because people feel way more okay about moving to a job that from a job they don't like to a job they would like better if their uh, health insurance isn't tied to the job that they have right now. So they actually have more freedom in a system like the Nordic countries. Um, But not only that, then there's economic payoff because it turns out that example, this is also true of Sweden, they pay only two-thirds the amount as as a nation for health care that the United States does. And yet their system works far better. Because it turns out that raising the money for a health system uh, is just way more efficient uh, raising it through taxes than it is through the variety of other ways that we do. So I see a lot of unity actually between their same policies on on uh, climate and the same policies that they've already established through innovation, and then saying, "Hey, this works. Let's keep it." Uh, the the same policies that they've got with regard to equality and
0: and. Uh, All right. Well, George Lakey, thank you for talking with us today, taking time out of your very busy schedule. uh, George Lakey is the author of Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. And he will give the keynote on the topic of building a movement, the big picture vision for the climate at the Sierra Club of Maine's Maine Grassroots Climate Action Conference on Saturday uh, September 16th at USM in Lewiston. For more information about the conference you can go to sierraclub.org/maine. And George, what is the website for your publisher again? For your the rest of your schedule. Thank you for talking with us today. You're so welcome. And you've been listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM, our independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Catch us here every Tuesday at 4 o'clock on community radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Alchemy and A World of Music.
2: Support for WERU comes from our listeners.